Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Welcome, and thanks for joining us, and Happy New Year. It is the beginning of 2022, and I hope you are looking forward to a year full of possibility. At Civil Squared, we are optimistic people, so we're optimistic about all the opportunities that the new year brings, particularly the opportunity to have great conversations. As you know, if you've listened to the podcast in the past, our goal is always to bring you conversations that will give you new ideas, that will help you think about issues in your community that matter to you, and also to give you some practical tips about how to engage in productive conversations about those issues. And I hope that you joined us in 2021 for all the great conversations that we have. I was fortunate to be able to speak to philosophers, economists, nonprofit leaders, business leaders, the list goes on and on. And if you missed any of those discussions, you can always catch up. Just visit our website at civilsquare.org or wherever you get your podcasts, you'll be able to find those as well. As we start 2022, I thought it'd be a good time to think back and reflect on some of those discussions in 2021 and to think about some of the most insightful things we've heard the things that I'm still thinking about, that I'm still discussing with my friends, with people at work, and with social networks, and to focus on some ideas and actions that will help you make a difference right where you are and in your networks. So here are some of the best ideas we heard in 2021. These are ideas we hope you will be able to use in 2022. As I look back at the conversations I had in 2021, one thing I noticed was that we had a lot of conversations with people about crime and criminal reform. We talked to people about the rising violence across the United States, particularly the homicide rate. We talked to people about mass incarceration. We talked about the prospects for people once they leave incarceration. And so I think in 2022, this is an issue that we have to be thinking about because it affects all of our communities in the United States. So first up, you're going to hear from Grant Callen. Grant is the founder and CEO of Empower Mississippi. And in the episode, Grant talked about the fact that he is a conservative and that he runs a conservative organization, but he is willing to work with anyone who has good ideas and is looking for ways to improve. Mississippi is a state that has one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. And what you're going to hear is Grant talking about his journey in the way he thinks about incarceration and the way he thinks about punishment for crimes. Here's Grant. You know, I grew up with a really misguided view about our prison system. Um, I think I I thought everybody fits neatly into one of two groups. They're good people and they're bad people. And good people um, deserve to be out in society and bad people have done bad things and they need to be behind bars. And the longer, the better, the harsher the sentence, the better, because it's, a, it's gonna create an incentive for other people not to, to do what they've done. And the more I've studied the system, the more I've realized 
that's just a wrong way to view the system. And it's an incredibly costly mistake, mm. both in terms of the economic cost of keeping a prison population the size that Mississippi does and America does, but even more so, it's incredibly costly on the human beings and the families that are behind bars. And you know, the truth is there, there are people that do horrific things that are dangerous to society, um, that deserve to be by, behind bars, some for their whole lives. Um, but you know, I had the opportunity to visit Parchman Prison a few years ago. And we spent a day in this, you know, legendary Mississippi prison with pretty horrendous conditions. Uh, you, know, you think about the, the heat in Mississippi, and this is an unair conditioned prison in the Mississippi Delta, where the heat index gets into the you know, hundreds and 120s at times. Um, and sure, there are people behind those bars who have done horrific things that deserve to be there. But what I didn't realize is how many people are really there because of an addiction issue. Mm. Uh, and instead of getting medical treatment or uh, care, they got sent to prison and you know they broke a law and for some they deserve to be there. But I think we once had this notion that sending people with drug problems or addiction issues to prison, they would at least sober up or mm. they, would, they, would, they would have a chance to dry out. And what actually ends up happening is there are more drugs and substances, illegal substances in our prisons than there are outside. Yeah. And so it doesn't actually work. And so we take people who weren't hardened criminals and you put them in a, in a prison aside, you know, right next to somebody who maybe is a hardened criminal and they're gonna learn what it's like to be a hardened criminal. And when you take somebody who, yes, they broke a law and maybe they deserve to be behind bars for a few years, but you give them a 20 year sentence for, for smoking pot, um, or 30 year sentence or something else, or in, in Mississippi's situation, we had somebody recently who um, received an exorbitant sentence because he had six boxes of Sudafed in his car mm -hmm. that was a, deemed to be a precursor to meth. Yep. Yep. So it's a real problem. It costs a lot to keep so many people behind bars. And that's really one of the reasons at Empower, we wanted to work on this yeah. and, you know, I think we're going to talk about some of the results because yeah. it's one of those places where I'm convinced people of goodwill can come together across the political spectrum and still get something done. Grant and his team at Empower Mississippi are working on policy. That is, they work with legislators, grassroots organizations, and they try to impact the laws that affect mass incarceration, probation, and prisoner reentry. But in 2021, we also talked to several people who had formerly been incarcerated about what the experience of being in prison and being released from prison was like for them. One of the people we talked to was Tony Kitchens. He's the Georgia Field Director for Prison Fellowship, and he serves on the board of the Georgia Center for Opportunity. Tony spends his time now, after being released from prison, working with formerly incarcerated individuals as they reenter society. Because mass incarceration is such a significant issue in the United States, all of our communities are affected by prisoner reentry. And so we talked to Tony about what any one of us can do to have some influence on our community and to ensure that those people reentering society do more than just reenter, but are integrated into the community. 
Here's Tony talking about his experience after being released from prison. My toughest challenge was not not escaping the prison that was made of concrete and steel. That was not my toughest challenge by no means, Mm -hmm. even though I was in prison for 11 years. My prison experience lasted for 11 years. And so that was not the toughest challenge for me. The toughest challenge for me was was really escaping the prison that I created on my own, which was the mental prison. You know, that was by far the toughest because it was built with the bricks of discrimination, the, the bricks of shame, the bricks of guilt, um, the, you know, the not knowing who I was. That was by far the darkest prison for me. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, I had to learn how to embrace my prison experience as part of my whole human experience, as opposed to shunning that experience. Yeah. It was it, that experience, it was what it was. And so how do you embrace that experience because it becomes a part of your whole community integration process. So it took a long time to learn that because I had to figure out where I had value. That's why I talk a lot about self-acceptance. And when I'm talking with uh, some of the people that I work and coach with, I talk about a lot about self-acceptance, but you really can't talk about self-acceptance until you focus on safety and security. You see? Yeah. So that's why the reentry process is so much different than the community reintegration process, because the, the reentry process focuses a lot on the immediate needs of the person to get them back to zero to where a point to where they can begin to think about who they are, what they bring to the table, you know, how can they accept, accept themselves as they are, how they embrace their prison experience and how they move down the continuum of to well-being. Yeah. I, it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack in that. It's a lot to unpack in that area. And so when we say successful, that's another thing. When we say successful, what does that really truly mean? What does that really truly mean to a person if they can't see what success means in terms of what society says success is? You see? Yeah. What's yeah. it, what's it, how do they define it? So if you define success as, as, as a, a house, a picket fence, two dogs, and a cat, you know, so yeah. <laughs> they, they, yeah. may not, they may not be able to get there because they're defining success as to what society tells them success is. But if they're satisfied to a point to where they're, well, they're, they've achieved a level of, of mental freedom and they've achieved a level of well-being, but then that's successful for them. It may not be successful for you, but it may be successful for them. One of the most important things we can do as community members to try and support those who are re-entering society after incarceration is to try to better understand the situation that they find themselves in when they are released from prison. So I asked Tony, what can any one of us do if we're concerned about this issue and we want to be helpful and supportive to people who are re-entering society? Here's Tony's answer. Let me ask you a question. If you went to a doctor and he told you, he said, that you had to take the red pill or the blue pill. And he's, you've met him for the first time. Which pill would you take? And I have no other information. You have no other information. I would try and run away, actually. <laughs> 
But that's, that's kind of what that's kind of what people do when you're trying to help them and they don't have enough information. Yeah. To give you a case, another case in point, I remember I remember when I was leading a class and the lady came in, she was crying. And so I stopped the class and I went to talk with her while she was crying. She said on her way to the meeting, God spoke to her to go and help this homeless lady on her way out the door. And so she turned around, went back into the house and she fixed the lady a um, bologna sandwich with mayonnaise. And then the lady, she took the, took the um, bologna sandwich to the lady, the homeless lady. And the homeless lady asked her, did she have chicken? And I said, well, why would she say she, she, uh, she, she really was ungrateful. That's what she said. She said yeah. that the homeless lady was ungrateful and it made her feel bad. She said, because here she was trying to do God's work and trying to help them. And I said, well, did you think about maybe the lady might've been allergic to mayonnaise? You say, or maybe she was allergic to bologna? I don't know. The question becomes asking a person how you can help them. You say, how can you help? And they will oftentimes tell you how you can help. And then you come to that agreement as to what you're prepared to do to help them rather than always assuming that the person is helpless. They may be in, a, they may be in a, a situation where it may seem helpless to you, but it may be a situation which they're going through to get to another a level in their life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and also not ignoring the fact that because someone is in a position that they would rather not be in and you would rather not be in doesn't mean they've lost their other faculties, right? It doesn't mean that they can't think for themselves. It doesn't mean that they don't have preferences. It doesn't mean that they don't have self-respect. That is correct. That they don't have dignity because that's often the, the, in my experience, that is you hear people say things like, I'm not that broke. Mm -hmm. What does that really, what what are they really saying? They're saying that I might be broke, but I'm, but I'm still somebody. I'm, I still have dignity. Another issue that we discussed on multiple episodes of the podcast in 2021 was race. Race was in the news a lot in 2021, and we expect it will be again in 2022. Whether we were talking to people about how to have more productive discussions about race or specific issues related to racial inequality in the news. This is a sensitive subject, and the feedback we got from listeners bore that out. We had some people who were unhappy that we even discussed some of these things, and we had other people who said they might not have agreed with our guests, but they were glad to have heard a different viewpoint. One of the episodes that drew the most feedback was a conversation I had with Professor Colleen Murphy. Professor Murphy is at the University of Illinois. She's the Roger and Stephanie Jocelyn Professor of Law. She's also a professor of philosophy and political science and the director of Women and Gender in Global Perspectives. Professor Murphy works on transitional justice theory, and that might be something you have not heard of in the past, but there are parts of transitional justice theory that were absolutely in the headlines during 2021 in particular, the subject of reparations. We talked to Dr. Murphy about what transitional justice theory is, how it can be applied, and 
specifically the issue of reparations. In this next clip, you're going to hear Dr. Murphy talking about why, though many people think we just need to move forward, it's important for us to think about how to address wrongdoing in the past in order to be more productive in the present and to move forward in the future. Here's Dr. Murphy. The impetus to look forward is a very, it's not exclusively American, but it's definitely an American um, mode of dealing with ugly truths. Um, And, you know, partly I I think it's on a more optimistic take. It's part of the optimism of America, right? We're forward looking. We want to do better in the future. Um, And I guess the lesson of transitional justice, which in its most uh, simple definition is the process of dealing with widespread wrongdoing. Um, The lesson of that body of scholarship and practice is that you can't actually move forward. You can't actually get unity or healing um, that's worth having unless you confront um, the ugliness of the past and of the present. And um, part of why that's so is because from the perspective of transitional justice, you know, the past continues to inform the present um, in big and small ways and how interaction is structured and the expectations people have. Um, When you look at um, cultivating trust, for example, among marginalized communities, black and brown citizens with respect to law enforcement the history of violence disproportionately affecting and continuing to affect black and brown communities shapes the attitude, the default stance that's taken. And so if you wanna build trust, you have to acknowledge and deal with the grounds that make distrust reasonable. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to unify and heal, you have to understand the ways in which relationships are damaged. And so it's sort of that is why the starting point of transitional justice, the mantra is um, looking back, reaching forward. It's if, you, if, you, if that's what you really want, you really wanna move forward together in a unified way, you won't be able to do that unless you deal with the past and the present mm-hmm. and, and the wrongdoing, um, the ugliness of right. those periods. In the course of my conversation with Professor Murphy, she described in detail the five pillars of transitional justice theory. I want to encourage you to listen to the entire episode so that you can hear her explanation and hear some of the examples she gives to describe the way that transitional justice theory has been applied to past wrongdoing. But in particular, there are two parts of transitional justice theory that we hear about in the news with respect to addressing the wrongdoing of slavery in the United States, truth commissions and reparations. I asked Professor Murphy to think about when people who are reading news about these things and are hearing about it absent more context about transitional justice theory and its history and how it has been used, how we balance both being proud of who we are as Americans with an acknowledgement that there are very bad things that have happened in our past, some of which continue today, and that we need to address them. But by virtue of addressing them, are we saying that it's wrong to be proud to be an American? Here's Professor Murphy. Keep at the forefront um, and emphasize that um, transitional justice is 
not a project that is designed to um, jettison American ideals. America is a land of opportunity. America is, a, is aspiring to be a community where um, all are equal. So it's not about um, saying those ideas or and ideals and commitments are worthless or um, indefensible. That's not the project. The project is rather to say, let us try and be honest about the extent to which we have actually lived up to our ideals and accurately and adequately acknowledge our failures and the extent to which we haven't done what we say we're committed to doing. You know, we say we're the land where all are equal and yet we were founded on a commitment to slavery. Let's acknowledge the contradiction inherent in that founding and think about then, you know, the ramifications of that contradiction um, through to the present and, and, and what are we gonna do about that? So, mm -hmm. so that we can bring our actual practice um, closer to what we say we're committed to doing. And I think, you know, going along with that kind of taking an honest look at ourselves requires um, not trying to frame everything that's bad about the United States as somehow exotic or mm -hmm. as imported from other places. That really irks folks outside the United States when bad things happen here and it's described as just like what happens in Banana Republics was the reference after the January 6th right, you know, right. interaction. No, 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 no. You know, let's think about what it is that does and has and has for a long time happened here. So, you know, when I taught a transitional justice course with a South African colleague, lynchings is a distinctive form and distinctively American form of um, atrocity and injustice. Um, racialized slavery took a distinctive American form with distinctive American denials and rationalizations. So, you know, the other part is just saying we can be wonderful um, in the ideals that we are committed to and yet fail to meet them. And mm -hmm. we have failed to meet them. And let's be honest about that so that we can come closer to achieving and realizing what we say we're committed to. And, you know, in, in the course of normal individual living, this is not a radical thought. You know, right, you wanna right. be the best person and the best people are the most honest about their own limitations. And because that is what motivates you to try and do better, yeah, right? Yeah. To try and improve. If you think you're already at the best, then there's no re to, need reason to do anything better or differently and you don't improve and change. Having productive discussions about race or thinking about practical ways to address racial inequality seems overwhelming for most of us. We might be worried that those conversations will be too sensitive or upsetting or that we don't have the right information. As a result, maybe we're not even talking about these subjects. I asked Professor Murphy what any one individual can do in the face of something that seems so overwhelming and it's such a large scale that maybe one person doesn't feel like he or she can do anything. Here's Professor Murphy's response, and you'll notice a theme that we see over and over again from our guests. Start at the local level. Here's Professor Murphy. Commit to becoming informed about the efforts that are undertaken underway um, of, of various kinds. There's just, you know, uh, 
transitional justice, one of the, the emphases of recent scholarship and practice is how essential gra grassroots activism is. So, um, you know, it, it helps if there's a national framework or a national emphasis on transitional justice, but that's by no means necessary, nor is it sufficient. Um, and so, you know, kind of really um, underscoring the importance of local activism and agency. So, you know, I was born in Evanston, Illinois, and growing up had no sense of, um, though I moved from, from Evanston to a different um, suburb of Chicago when I was young, you know, I wasn't aware of the extent of the history of redlining in that city until, honestly, until the, the program of reparations that was established. Of course, on one level I knew because I knew redlining was an issue mm -hmm. everywhere, but the form it took, the consequences it had. So another thing is to dig into the history of the city or region or state where one lives. Um, you know, the history of every state or, and city is not identical. There are patterns, there are common forms of wrongdoing, but really understanding the dynamics of, of ongoing dynamics, existing present dynamics that are problematic from the perspective of uh, racial justice, um, as well as the history of one's place, you know, and trying to get that history uh, better known, better acknowledged, um, better redressed. And so, you know, that, that, that's sort of a general um, to do to sort of take the model of, of Evanston, which was the first city in the nation to do this and not necessarily duplicate that model, but think about other forms of transitional justice that different cities or, you know, uh, um, states might take. Um, and um, working in collaboration with organizations that are on the ground, I guess this is the last point to say, you know, there's a lot of organizations on the ground that have been doing this work encountering um, and working for and advocating for racial justice for a long, long time, um, for, for trying to get better acknowledgement of um, the history of indigenous injustice. So, you know, at the University of Illinois, we start now programming with a land acknowledgement, acknowledging the indigenous peoples that lived on the lands that are now comprised by the University of Illinois. And that's a very recent thing. So looking at and educating oneself into the organizations that can be supported that have already been engaged in this work um, and amplifying the message of those groups and organizations, learning about the history of one's place and just recognizing again that um, grassroots is where it's at. You know, the local is what's essential for getting the kind of support for national efforts and the kind of enduring character that repairing our relationships really um, needs to take. Another guest who spoke to us about the importance of thinking at the local scale was Dr. Tony Woodleaf. Tony has a new book out called I Citizen, A Blueprint for Reclaiming American Self-Governance. At Civil Squared, we often talk about political polarization, and we talk about ways to combat political polarization and help people to have productive discussions regardless of their political viewpoints. Tony's new book makes a really interesting argument that perhaps political polarization is not as bad as we've been led to believe. Here's Tony's account of what's really going on if you look at polls and why we should be suspect about some of the polls that seem to demonstrate that Americans have incoherent political views and actually can't agree on much. I take a hard look at the way polls are constructed 
And, and I look at, in particular, two national longstanding uh, polling series, one out of the University of Chicago, the, the other out of the University of Michigan. The reason I do that is because, um, and my friends don't like to hear this, On my friends on both sides of the aisle, they don't like to hear this, but most of the polling that we see in the news, in our you know, news feeds, email uh, subscriptions, whatever you're doing, is garbage. It's not designed to discern any kind of truth. It's, it was pre-designed to yield the result that the pollsters wanted because they're working for one interest or another, and they're using them to persuade you, the marginal voter, to put pressure on your legislator to vote the way these people want. So all that stuff, we, we move out of the way because it's not legitimate in the first place. But there are some legitimate polls. And my fellow political scientists look at those polls, and they have a lot of evidence to show that the average American doesn't know what she wants. You ask her one, one year, hey, should we have more welfare or less? Well, she wants more welfare. And then here she is two years later. Hey, should we have more welfare or not? No, it's too much welfare. So political scientists love looking at those examples of people flipping back and forth and saying, average Americans don't know what they want. And then they double down on it. They say, let's test their knowledge of things. So here's this, you know, tell, tell us who's, who's the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Well, most people don't know. Well, look at that. They don't even know the basics about politics. You know, how many chambers are in Congress? I don't know, three, one. Look at that. They don't know anything and their opinions keep changing. So we can't trust these people with the kind of power the founders intended. It's such a neat narrative. It fits so closely to what the political class believes. Yeah, yeah. You know, they think they have the justification. And so what I wanted to look at was, and earnestly, because I didn't know, I wanted to know, are we the people really fit to govern ourselves as the founders intended? Because if we're not, then for all my dislike of the political class, I can't really complain. Maybe they have right. a point. We can't be trusted. Right. So I spent a lot of time, which I won't be labor here, mostly because I want you to go by the book. Uh, but I you know, try to make it a fun little walk through how these polls are built what's going on behind them, what it means when these political scientists take a bunch of answers to questions like, should we have more welfare or are we invested enough in space exploration? And that you answer on a seven point scale and they take all those little you know, numbers between one and seven and crush them down into a number that tells you what your ideology is. I walk through that with examples of um, you know, real life to show that the truth is Americans do have pretty stable preferences about things. It's not that hard to discern them. And they're largely in agreement on things that matter. Um, I don't argue that we should therefore do whatever the majority wants, but I'm trying to show that there's coherency. There's a coherency to the American mind that the political class and political scientists overlook because neither of those groups really wants what the average American wants. Tony isn't worried that the average American is so far apart from his or her neighbor, as these polls would lead us to believe. He doesn't think that most Americans have extreme ideology. But that doesn't mean he's not worried. He is worried about the combination of unthinking political partisanship and strong ideology, because it means we're not making good decisions about the issues that are affecting us locally. And it means we're ignoring data about what's happening in our communities because it's at odds with our political ideology. Here's Tony to explain. 
there's a benefit, I think, to, uh, to examining ideology and saying, well, if I think markets are good, then I guess that extends to a lot of things. Uh, and I better think about uh, other policy positions I have. But then, like you're saying, the flip side is, if I believe in you know, f- freedom of choice, and, and I think, well, I, I believe that across the board. So I think you know, school choice is good. People ought to choose what schools they want. Um, then if suddenly uh, I, I'm firmly ideologically in the camp of freedom of choice, free markets, and then someone offers earnest data to suggest that charter schools, for example, on average don't outperform other public schools, the someone who is simply trying to be a good citizen and arrive at the best solutions for Americans would consider the evidence. But mm-hmm. when you're ideologically committed in advance to, well, free markets are always good, then it's going to be harder for you to consider that evidence because it's going to challenge all this other stuff you believe. Yeah. Um, and we see that more and more where it's what Jonathan Hyde talks about in the righteous mind, you're responding in part to what tribe we think the other person is from, the person trying to persuade us. And we're immediately judging what this new bit of information means for what we care about. And then our analytical mind goes into over overtime to pick apart the fact if it, we feel it as a threat. And so that's right. the real danger is that you don't, we don't behave rationally once we've embraced this mix of partisanship and ideology. Earlier in this episode, I played a clip of Grant Callen from Empower Mississippi talking about, regardless of political ideology, if well-meaning people get together and work together, they can affect really important change in their community. It's appropriate then, as we near the end of this episode, that we listen to what Tony has to say about the prospects for us to reclaim our ability to self-govern. While it is true, that political partisanship combined with ideology is going to lead to bad things, and that our preoccupation with political theater at the national level is a distraction we can't afford. It's also true that the founders thought there was a really straightforward equation for how we could improve our own lives and the communities around us. Here's Tony. The founders, their worldview was that uh, people would govern themselves in their states and in their townships. And I think they did have an expectation that people would be appropriately engaged, but there was no notion that you had, you had to have a nation of Aristotles because the, the very practice of self-governance is a, a form of education of the citizen. The other thing um, I think we ought to keep in mind is I mean, they, they quickly, they had their own rancor and disputes, um, you know, in the, in Washington, D.C. from the very beginning. Uh, we have to keep that in mind. Um, there's also the, their political philosophy. It was informed by a, a more um, classical understanding of democracy than we have today. And, and today, our point of view of democracy is it's a kind of math where uh, half of us wants one thing, the other half wants something else. And so let's count up how many are on each side. And 50% plus one, they get what they want. But an o- older sense of democracy. And Jane, Jane Mansbridge has written a lot about this wonderful um, thinker. An older understanding of democracy is that uh, it's people in a community reasoning together um, until they can arrive at a, a mutually palatable conclusion. And there's a willingness 
to not have everything you want, um, to not have things run perfectly because your community and your neighbors, your family mean more to you than ideology. Uh, and which is a kind of ideology itself, which is community matters more than uh, pure political results. So I think then that if you have that context in mind, get into your actual question versus the one I'm answering, uh, <laughs> there is on the one hand, a much lower demand that citizens read political magazines and you know be up on all the facts. But at the same time, uh, a system that was intended for people to be brought in and educated as they go, because they're the ones deciding what the schools are, are gonna teach, uh, what are the standards for teachers, um, how are we gonna deal with um, guns in our communities, right? What are we gonna do about disease? Those are things that they, the assumption was, they had no other way to think about it, but the assumption was communities will figure that out and people will mm -hmm. reason together and arrive at the what for them are the best solutions when you keep in mind that one of the goals always is comity, not just the best outcome politically. I'm going to end this episode with another clip from Tony. And I want to explain why I'm ending where I am. As I think about 2022 and my goals for the year, I hope that what we can do at Civil Squared on this podcast and in our newsletter is provide you with encouragement and inspiration to take steps yourself to make the world around you a better place. I hope that you find that inspiration in the conversations you hear on this podcast. And I hope that if you do, you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast so that others can join the conversation. But I hope as you think about your goals for 2022, you'll hear Tony's words here in closing and you will be encouraged. When you're, you're coaching your, your, your child's little league team, you've got the kind of coach identity on. And then when you're at work, you've got the employee identity. We have different identities for different contexts. And part of what we see is that the political class is working overtime to make uh, your ideology or your partisanship, your number one identity that then colors everything else. So I talked a little bit about how do we reclaim more American identity. And then the final chapter, I give some things anyone can do starting with yourself. And so I'll just tell you one, which is very counterintuitive, but I'm convicted it's the number one thing just for life period. And that is love your neighbor. And I talk a little bit about what that means. Um, you know, what love is not a feeling or it's an action feelings could be associated, but what is the action of loving your neighbor? And then I'm trying, I'm basically channeling Tocqueville, right? Because he talks a lot about um, the, the American kind of democracy versus say the French democracy of his age, which was, they could, they could immediately rise up with this fervor and go off to murder one another in Europe because of a kind of shallow national allegiance versus an American democracy, which was rooted in community and people coming together to solve problems with one another. And so that to me is the first step. The feds, political class have worked over time for decades to destroy any kind of local self-governance. And the only way you get out of that is to begin to knit back together those bonds. And it's unsatisfying to some people because there's no switch that we're gonna flip. But I think it's also more honest.
we might as well face it. It's always been the case that any great reform begins with the human heart and you only have control over one of those. But what you do with yours can affect what happens to others. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.